Oh yes, we're on the air. Hi, and welcome to Hey, All You Zombies, and welcome to our weekly podcast where we talk about things in the pop culture and obsessions and odd interests and generally things that we love. Uh, it's February, so we're getting close to Valentine's Day. I'm wearing my red shirt. Sadly, there are no zombie dating services that I know of yet. Although I don't well, know. this week or last weekend now in theaters, there was... Uh, what I think is probably the first Zomcom, a romantic comedy with a zombie in the lead role. That's very cool. So this is, uh, of course, film critic extraordinaire, Mr. Richard Krause. Today alone, I had my bear with me along and, today. <laughs> and the bear. And now, the bear. Uh, which movie is that? Are you talking about Warm Bodies? I'm talking about Warm Bodies, and it was number one over the weekend. And, you know, I saw it uh, a while ago. I saw it in, like, November or December and was quite charmed by it. I thought it was really funny. I liked uh, Teresa Palmer, who was uh, – she's the female lead. Nicholas Halt, who is the uh, male lead. You'll remember him, perhaps, as the little boy that was in About a Boy with Hugh Grant, like, really? ages ago. Yeah, oh. well, he's playing the uh, – the, the zombie who's having kind of an existential crisis. He's, he, he, he's not happy with his life or – death or whatever it is that you call what he's experiencing right now. And uh, he wants more out of it, but um, he can't remember his past life really. So then on one of his big zombie raids, he's eating the brains of this guy. And he says he doesn't really like eating brains. Uh, he's only, he needs to, but he's conflicted about it. So it sets him apart from some of the other zombies. But he's eating this guy's brains. And what happens when you eat someone's brains in the mythology of warm bodies is you take on that person's memories. So as he's eating the brains, he's also falling in love with Julie, played by Teresa Palmer, who was a terrified young woman cowering in the corner at this point. And then their romance blossoms from there. He becomes very protective of her. He teaches her how to navigate. She's a live woman. Teaches her how to navigate through the world of zombies, uh, plays her some cool old records that he's managed to find, and they fall in love. And it's kind of like Romeo and Juliet meets The Walking Dead meets Pinocchio. You know, and uh, and it's it's good stuff. I you know, it doesn't make any sense. Like one of the things I I think when I reviewed it, out of five stars, I gave it three. And you know, and I reviewed it over the weekend on the you know TV and radio and stuff. And people were like, I thought you liked it more than three stars. I'm like, I did. I liked it, but it doesn't make any sense. So I can't give it four stars. I can't really like it. Really doesn't make any sense. But you kind of don't care because there's enough there that it it, it holds up. Well, as long as it's not yet another movie that's just trying to appeal to a specific demographic based on what executives think, which right. is constantly what we sort of tend to see in the vampire werewolf zombie world. Sure. Uh, if it's an original story, then it sounds great. I'll have to go yeah. check it out. Yeah, we it, like it, this one feels a little different than that. It doesn't feel like it's been um, you know test marketed to death. Although maybe that's why it doesn't make a lot of sense because maybe maybe it has been. You know, maybe, that, and that's why they, you know, they, they took out some things, or I don't know. All I know is that it's a really enjoyable movie, and it was a nice little stopgap for me uh, between, you know, uh, no zombies in my life and The Walking Dead coming back, because The Walking Dead are coming back, and anyone who has watched this podcast knows how obsessive, certainly I was, and I don't want to use the word obsessive for you, because... It's a word that you use about yourself or not, but I knew you loved the show as well, The Walking Dead. Sure. And um, I, this is an, this isn't a story that I that I'll uh, I'm not going to count this as one of my stories, but I will. I just want to mention that um, The Walking Dead starting again on Sunday. I'm going to be in New York, but I know 
I'm going to be in my hotel around, you know, nine o'clock on, on uh, Sunday night, regardless of how much fun I'm having. I'm going to go home and watch The Walking Dead. Uh, but if you're in Toronto, we're taping this on Tuesday. If you're in Toronto tomorrow, so on Wednesday, February 6th, uh, go to Union Station between 2 and 7. They're going to turn it into Union Station, for those of you outside of the GTA, is uh, kind of the Grand Central Station of Toronto. It's the hub. It's where all the subways sort of empty out into. It's where the GO train is. All that stuff takes you out to the other parts of the city. Because they're turning it into kind of a, an apocalyptic wasteland, uh, and they're going to have zombies everywhere, apparently, for five hours between 2 and 7 to count down to uh, the big, uh, the, the big uh, premiere on Sunday night. And um, I just got an email about this. I talked about it on the radio a little bit. And so uh, the upper level of Union Station on Wednesday, they're gonna transform part of it with a massive countdown board, which is made to look like walker hands, like zombie hands. Um, and a finger gets severed off as they get closer and closer to the event. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So eventually, you know, by Sunday night, there's going to be two zombie stumps. But uh, until then, you will go and you'll get to see a finger get it cut off every now and again uh, <laughs> on Sunday. So, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's a, it's a cool uh, thing to do, I think. I, I, I'm excited. I'm going to go down on Sunday or on, on Wednesday, rather, uh, and, uh, and check it out. Between 2 and 7, it's going to be a zombie apocalypse. Oh, and that, it's fantastic because it's not something that we often see here in Canada. Not to that extent. I mean, you know, they're going all out with this from yeah. what it sounds like. And to well, me, that, this, this season is the best season yet. It's some of the best television, period. So you got to make sure that people know about it. Well, and I don't know if you've heard, but they've changed the showrunner again. I know. I don't really understand this. I mean, Frank Darabont, I, you know, I, I love Frank Darabont. I like his movies. I mm -hmm. like... Uh, you know, he made the Green Mile. He made the Mist. I'm sure uh, Shawshank Redemption. Uh, he's he's a, a very talented writer. He brought these things to life, these these characters to life with a great deal of integrity, and you know, managed the show for two years uh, before he was kind of unceremoniously dumped. Yeah. Um, even though he created, you know, he brought it to television, found the property, brought it to television, unceremoniously dumped, and you know. Maybe it's just that AMC didn't want to spend the money to have someone of his level uh, work on this, but it's their highest rated show. So, I mean, I don't really get that. But uh, um, what I'd heard was that Mad Men, which is the prestige show, was demanding more and more money. So they had to find the budget somewhere. And I can't believe that this is true. And so it came out of the Walking Dead thing. So that's why you have a, a, a season, which is you know based on a farm. With people yeah. kind of like sitting around talking about zombies rather than any actual zombies appearing, you know. But then Darabont leaves, and then the third season has been wicked. It's been really great. So it's been much different than the, the season that preceded it. Sure. So I don't know how I feel about it. And certainly I would think this guy, person, I shouldn't say guy, this person, whoever it is that's the showrunner right now, uh, has done a great job of, of turning this show into something that it is really, I mean, Twitter usage goes up on Sunday nights by a huge amount. So he's done something right. They've done something right. Why get rid of them? I know. And the, the new guy that they're bringing in, um, I mean, I don't even know him. I don't recognize the name. The credits that were being posted online were Saturday morning cartoons. Right. So, right. Uh, yeah. 
Oh. <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about this. I mean, you know, I want to, I want to love this show, and I think that this show has the potential to be around for a while because, uh, not necessarily with the cast that we know now, but because it's set in a in a post-apocalyptic world and people are essentially just walking around, finding places to live and stuff, you have the opportunity to introduce new characters, you have the opportunity to do all kinds of stuff, you have the opportunity to do what uh, George A. Romero, who I'm gonna talk about a bit later, because it was his birthday yesterday, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you have the opportunity to do what he did and, and change up the zombies a little bit. So in Land of the Dead, he has zombies who start to have cognitive thought and, and start to, you know, sort of think for themselves, which makes them even more terrifying. You have the chance to have that happen on the show. You've got the chance to take it almost anywhere you go. This could go on for ages and ages, you know, if handled properly and be really good and interesting and new and fresh almost every season. I just don't know why they can't seem to hang on to a showrunner. Yeah, I don't understand because if they invest just in this main show, then they, you know if it's if it's all about money, the long term goal is going to be that this main show will branch off to other properties and make other money, and you know will have a life unto its own that will can keep coming back again and again. The the video game series, The Walking Dead, that has been spawned from the show has been amazing. It's it's one of the, the top game experiences to have from last year, uh, and available on iPad as well as Xbox, and you know just fantastic. So why they would be so tight and, and conservative and, and monkeying around with something that is going to bring them a huge feast of, of, of business, I don't understand. doesn't yeah. make any sense to me, but that's often how the business works, isn't it? Yeah, so the Glenn Mazzara was uh, the showrunner uh, for season right. three. Right. And um, uh, I'm just looking at the Hollywood Reporter here. It doesn't really say in this article anyway, who the showrunner is for season four. But anyway, uh, The Walking Dead's coming back. Go to Union Station, take pictures of crazy zombies. Apparently, they're going to be tied up. They're going to be, like, tied to things so they can't attack people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's fantastic. We'll see how people scurry past those who aren't really sort of into it. Well, it'll be interesting because it's going to take place over the, the evening rush hour which is substantial through that building. I mean, there's a lot of people coming and going. So I'm curious to see what goes on there. I can't wait for our local homeless guys to come by and, and have conversations with those, those people <laughs> chained up. That'll be interesting. It might be more interesting than a lot of the conversations they have with the regular folks who don't give them money on the street. <laughs> in <a day> <laughs> um, well, I'm going to celebrate uh, a birthday as well as we start off. Uh, this fellow right here. Alice Cooper, his birthday yeah. was yesterday. His birthday was yesterday. He is now uh, 65 years old. Man, I can't believe that. I know. It's astonishing. Uh, and he's still, like, rocking out hard. He, he yeah. has a world tour every year. Uh, I saw a clip of him performing on stage the other night. It's amazing. He's still, you know, kicking it and rocking it. and He's got the costumes on. Just fantastic. Very happy for him. Yeah, I mean, Alice Cooper, uh, when I was a kid, because I'm older than you, Alice Cooper was uh, the dude. Everybody, you, you loved Alice Cooper, or you may as well, you know, don't you? I, I couldn't even talk to you if you didn't like Alice Cooper. I was very, very uh, into it. And here, here, here's another picture I just want to show. It was uh, Alice Cooper with a birthday cake. <laughs> um, jumping out of the birthday jumping cake. Jumping out of the birthday cake, yeah. Uh, this would have been old. This is this is like 70s era, I think. 
Um, but uh, he was he was big news, and uh, I went to see him in about 1980, I think, at the CNE in Toronto. And, you know, I had never seen him before. I had been a fan forever. I had all the records. I had the Billion Dollar Babies album that you opened up, and you got a billion dollar bill in it, and you got, like, uh, perforated trading cards of all the band members and stuff. Lyric Sheet's the coolest. Anyway, so, and, and I had the Killer album that had uh, the, the um, calendar inside of Alice. He was hung, and he had a gash on his stomach, and then it was like a calendar for 1972 or one or whatever year it came out. Anyway, so... We go see, we're terribly excited to go see this concert. There was a band called Zon opening, and Zon were kind of um, a, a new Canadian band that was just at the right level to open for Alice Cooper. People knew who they were, but they weren't you know big enough to headline a show like that themselves. So they play, and it seems like they're playing for a long time. And I'm like, this is weird that an opening act would play for like an hour and a half, but whatever. Woo! That's rocking out. Alice Cooper's coming. And then there's an announcement saying, you know, Alice Cooper is at the airport. He's been delayed, but he'll be on with us. Let's hear a few more from Zon. So they'd come out and play another couple of songs, and I'm sure they're playing some of the same songs we've already heard them play. And then I start to see uh, police on horseback come in, and I'm like, oh, my God. Alice Cooper is not coming. He's not coming. And Sure enough, he, he doesn't come. He, he doesn't show up. And I don't know what happened, uh, but he didn't show up. And the audience went crazy and tore the stage apart. And I thought it turned into a riot. And I sat in my chair. I'm a kid. I, I, I sat in my chair. I'm about 16, 17 years old. And I thought, if I just sit here and let you know everything else happen around me, everyone's trying to run for the doors and stuff. If I just sit there... I'll be fine. I'm not causing any trouble. And I thought that until I got hit with a baton, a billy club from a cop who was trying to get everyone out there. And I also got hit with the arm of a chair. Somebody had torn the arm off the chair, and I got hit with it in the back of the head. And uh, I kept it, and I had it for years. It was probably in here somewhere. It's probably uh, in a box here somewhere. And the next day on Young Street, uh, they used to, back in those days, sell buttons, you know, the the, the rock buttons. Yeah. And, uh they, uh, I bought one on Young Street the very next day. That's a picture of Alice Cooper, and it said, "You're a riot, Alice." Pretty great. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I, it's. I mean, I, I always love. I, I was drawn, of course, to all that you've just described. The fact that uh, there's this great sense of theatrics with uh, with his, you know, stage performances. The wonderful paraphernalia that always is produced around him. I mean, there's just yeah. a great sense of humor and the the jackets and the batons and all the costumes. And it just sounds like a really fantastic time to go to one of his concerts. The the, the ones that I've been to, I've always been that way. But I wanted to kind of mention why his music has always been very important to me. Why I think it is important in the grand scheme of music. What makes it different right. from other bands? Because there have been people like Marilyn Manson and other shock rockers that have come and, and gone. Yeah. Uh, but his has always sort of, you know, I think been elevated beyond everybody else. And for me, it has to do with the stagecraft of the music, not the, the, the stage performances, which are fantastic, but the actual music itself. When I heard it when I was 16 and 17, that's what blew me away, was that as I was listening to it with my headphones, I had a very visual stage in my mind. I could see where characters were standing. I knew what action was happening as it moved across the stage. You knew where intros were. I mean, his songs don't start. They introduce characters. They introduce yeah, totally. players and scenes. And I thought that was really amazing. And as I've done research over the years, I've become very impressed 
buy that because it's it's astonishing for someone who started in the mid 1960s to kind of come up with that idea to develop that kind of music when other people weren't doing that uh, and you know you have to remember that in the 1960s every stereo every jukebox every radio had just one speaker and all music was coming out in mono right and so for a bunch of teenagers to kind of develop that idea of wanting to create music that had a sense of space to it is kind of astonishing when you aren't growing up listening to music that's separated by stereo and things like that. I've read how the Beatles hated stereo. Uh, John Lennon said, you know, why are you dragging me back into the studio to do a stereo mix? Every teenager in the land's listening to, you know, jukebox. Why if John, um, Paul McCartney used to say, I don't really care if the drums are way the hell over there. The music <laughs> here. <laughs> it's got to be here. And um, after reading about it, I realized what did it. Uh, Alice Cooper and his teenage friends in Detroit, they were huge movie buffs, just like you and I. Yep. And for him, his interest was, how can I take all the kind of creativity that I see in movies, horror movies, Zorro, he was a huge Zorro fan, and put that into music. And the key was they went and saw West Side Story. Right. I know this story. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the, the even though West Side Story is a musical, it's about a guy going through Spanish Harlem yelling, Maria. It, it's, it's as, as you know, uh, as. When you reject, you reject all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. And that, that's the only yeah, show that's tune it. I know right there. That, just that much of it. That street fight. Uh, really blew them away. The fact that you could have music that had that energy, that had that attitude, that was rebellious, that was dangerous, that had that kind of action, really inspired them to think that this is something you could do with rock and roll, uh, which nobody else would have thought of. And so when I listen to his music, it's it's amazing that the, the staging that is involved, mm -hmm. where other bands would create their albums and then have to try to figure out a stage show to, to make them go with it, his music already had it in there and would attract people like Bob Rock to come in and remix you know just fantastic stuff i've always loved it i love the the one album where uh because he deals with all sorts of strange topics not just uh loving the dead or, or killing the babies but you know um dealing with uh alcoholic abuse right which he was not i mean he was very open about his alcoholism um, and the amount that he used to drink uh, in the 70s and how his life has been transformed by not drinking now. And, uh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, he, and he's faced it, you know, both very publicly and in his music. For me, though, the Alice Cooper that I loved uh, was the early Alice Cooper. And uh, this guy, this Alice Cooper right here, um, that's, that's the calendar that you got in the foldout of the Killer album. And uh, can you imagine me as like a, a 13 year old having that hanging in my bedroom and my mother would come in clean around it? <laughs> Not popular. Not popular at all in the house. No, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you, you know, those first, uh, the, 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 the albums that I love, the Love It to Death and, and that, were produced by Bob Ezrin, who's a Torontonian. Yes. He also produced The Wall, uh, albums for Kiss, Kiss Destroyer, another big album for me when I was a kid. And you, you could start to tell Bob Ezrin records because if there was a child's chorus on it, a rock album with a child's chorus on it, probably Bob Ezrin. Yeah. We don't need no education, you know, uh, by Pink Floyd, or Youth, any, you know, anything. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I like uh, Al's as he got older, um, always being sort of this modest fellow. I mean, he, he wanted, he didn't want to play any of the kind of rock idols that people worshipped. Didn't want to be like, you know, Jim Morrison. He wanted a character that was a character, a villain, somebody that would engage you, that kind of thing. And he's always been kind of very modest in terms of being a rock star. Uh, and that's something I, I've appreciated. But I like how, as he got older, he became this guy who, you know, still has long hair. <laughs> the big honking nose would often look like some homeless dude. You know, he looked like the kind of guy you would expect to find at 3 a.m. in the morning just lying out in the middle of the street. And yet in the course of the night, he would eventually transform and become this sort of, you know, odd charlatan gesture kind of fellow, a corrupt politician. And then by the end of the night, become this huge demonic prince. And so I always thought that that was a great thing for, you know, someone who's still 65 to be able to perform that again and again and again. And be as loved as he is. I mean, one of the things I think about it is that even though the stage show has, you know, it, it's very theatrical, there's a sense of humor about it. And I think um, I met him uh, once years ago. He was doing a, a signing at uh, HMV, I think, on, on Young Street here in Toronto. And I went, it was a friend of mine's birthday, and I went and I bought the girliest, most ridiculous card that I could find, little kittens on it and pink clouds and things. And I had him sign it to her. <laughs> Which I, and he did with absolutely no question, and I thought it was uh, awesome. It was a, it was a great uh, it was a great thing, a great little piece of paraphernalia to have. Well, very cool. Well, and I just sort of want to you know wish him a, a wonderful happy birthday. He's sixty five, still married to his ballerina wife. Uh, his daughter now tours with him on stage. She got into dancing as well, and oh. yeah, everything seems to be pretty cool for the guy. So it's good to hear. Yeah, I know that's cool. Well, it's cool to be Al Cooper. That's all there really is to it. It's not. There's nothing wrong with being Alice Cooper these days, I bet. Um, speak about Alice Cooper for another second, because I think I know where my Alice, you're a riot pin is, and I'm going to go grab it. <laughs> all right. About Alice Cooper. Yeah, and I mean, for me, um, one of the, the, the most important parts of, of listening to Alice Cooper was that when I was young uh, and found myself having to contemplate the idea of stepping onto a stage and having to talk publicly to people, uh, listening to Alice Cooper's music helped me understand the dynamic of energy, enthusiasm that's required to get out there and engage a lot of people, but also the theatricality of it, how he, when he sings, can change from different characters, uh, how you sort of you know, twist and turn his voice. There's a, a great song where I love that he describes waking up um, from an alcoholic stupor in his easy chair and then goes off following a trail to try to find his wife. This very complex song that's dealing with the idea of spousal abuse, but doing it so wonderfully, theatrically in the song, in the lyrics. And it's not something you hear too often from other bands. Yeah, um, I was wrong about that. I will look for it for next week, though, because I know it's here somewhere. Um, and uh, it's a little piece of uh, uh, Toronto history. And um, it happened on August 19th, 1980. Oh, cool. That is one date that I can tell you uh, what I did that day. And that's get hit with an urn from a chair thrown by someone who was mad that Alice Cooper did whatever it was that he did and didn't, didn't show up for this concert. Well, and it's interesting because I have to, to say, I have a box around here that actually has in it a piece of the arm from the stadium that I went to when I went to an Alice Cooper concert. So I have my own yeah. little chair arm as well. Maybe it was you that threw it at me. I may have been uh, going back in time with my TARDIS. Yes. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Did, uh, now, did you ever put on the makeup? Because I did when I went to the concert. 
No, no. I don't think I ever wore the Alice Cooper makeup, although maybe, you know, for Halloween it would have been certainly an idea. It would have been something that I would have done, but no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think uh, um, I was more just a fan. Like, a, as I say, those first few records, including Easy Action, the album that nobody likes. I, I, I love, I love Easy Action. Produced by Frank Zappa, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, like those, uh, I like those records and still listen to them every now and again. They're really good rock and roll records. Um, well, Alice Cooper shares a birthday with George A. Romero. And uh, Romero um, uh, lives in Toronto now. And, you know, it's interesting. He's lived here for 10 or 11 years. And uh, I'm not going to say where he lives, but he lives uh, south from where I live. And there is a, there's a grocery store that he goes to that I used to shop at all the time. On Sundays, I would shop. And uh, Andrea and I would be there, and we'd be shopping for things. And she would come running around the corner and going, Roger Corman's here. And I'd say, what the hell would Roger Corman be doing here? And the first, that's the first time it had, then I went, and then George A. Romero. So she was confused as, you know, the genre legend, which genre legend it was uh, at the store buying, you know, baked beans. And, uh, but then, you know, a couple of weeks later, Roger Corman's here again. I'm like, it's not Roger Corman. It's George A. Romero. Anyway, since then, uh, I've spent some time with, uh, with him a little bit. I've hosted a couple of events with him and, uh, and he's a lovely guy and it's his birthday. So in celebration of his birthday, um, I put together a little list of 10 things you probably don't know about George A. Romero. And, uh, the first one, here we go. I'm just, also, I've got some photos here, which I'm going to see if I can lay my hands on quickly. Um, Let's just see what's happening here. Yep. Uh, there we go. Hang on. Ah. There's over a lot of misconceptions about Romero and his zombies over the years. Well, Everybody kind of yeah. Yeah. There's a, there there are a number of things that that people don't really know about him um, that I think are, are are quite interesting. And I'm just going to email this picture to myself, and then we'll I'll put it up while we're. Uh, while we're talking, um, he's, you know, of course, changed things with uh, Night of the Living Dead. And, you know, that is the movie that uh, he will always be remembered for. Um, among other things, he's made great movies since then, and a lot of movies since then, but that is the one that he's most uh, uh, connected with. But you might be surprised to find out that George Romero's zombies don't eat brains. And he says, I've never had a zombie eat a brain. I don't know where that comes from. He told Vanity Fair, he said, who says zombies have to eat brains? So there you have it. That's the difference between him and, say, the Walking Dead zombies. Yeah, um, I think that's, that's Dan O'Bannon who introduced that with Return of the Night of the Living Dead, which was meant to be like a parody. But that's right. For some reason, it just caught on. I don't understand it, but yeah. Yeah, but that was because it's a horrific idea, you know, that they have to eat your brains. Uh, number two, Romero uh, didn't even call the undead characters zombies in his first movie. Uh, he says, when I did Night of the Living Dead, I called them ghouls and flesh eaters. Later on, he called them stenches. Uh, he rarely ever uses the word zombies. He says, back then, zombies were still the boys in the Caribbean doing the wet work for Lugosi. And he's referring to uh, white zombie, a uh, 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 Bella Lugosi movie from, I think, like 1939, 38. Um, he doesn't watch The Walking Dead. Uh, I love the books, he said, but I haven't seen any of the episodes. I asked him uh, during an event that I hosted with him uh, if, you know, he was watching 
The Walking Dead, and he said nope. And I said, uh, well, you would think that uh, you would get a royalty from those people. Or maybe, you know, I said, you'd think yeah. that you should be asked to um, uh, direct an episode or at least get a royalty. And he said, I don't get a royalty. I get royally screwed by them. Anyway, uh, that's how he feels about The Walking Dead. Um, he's had it with people asking him questions about zombies. When asked by EatSleepLiveFilm.com if he's tired of zombie quotes or queries, he said, yes, but what are you going to do? Because he, of course, is the king of the zombies. Um, the famous thick-rimmed black glasses are mostly for show these days. He needs them for reading, but he doesn't need them from far away. Uh, they are Goliath brand glasses. If you're looking to buy them online, they're the Goliath brand um, the Goliath is favored, it says here on the website, by famed horror filmmaker and grandfather of the zombie, George A. Romero. They're also worn by Elliot Gould in the Ocean's Eleven trilogy and Robert De Niro in Casino, as well as by the late flamboyant actor and game show host, Charles Nelson Riley. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Quentin Tarantino says the A in George A. Romero stands for a fucking genius when it actually stands for Andrew. And uh, getting on here, you would think, and this surprised me a little bit, when I, I wrote a, a, an article about Romero uh, a number of years ago, and uh, we had a long conversation where we didn't really talk about zombies all that much. Um, instead, we talked about other movies that, that he watches, because people are always asking me all the time, you know, uh, what's your favorite movie? What you know? And I, I never really have an answer for what my favorite movie is, but what I do have is um, here's a little snapshot from that uh, from one of our conversations. Um, what I do have is uh, movies that I would watch anytime, and uh, so I asked him kind of you know that question: Are there any movies that you would watch anytime? And he loves a movie called uh, The Tales of Hoffman, and he calls it the movie that made me want to make movies. He says, I was dragged kicking and screaming by an aunt and uncle. I wanted to see the new Tarzan or the new Lux Barker movie uh, to see how it stacked up against Westmuller. And they said, no, we're going to go see this. And I fell in love with it. It's just beautiful. Completely captivating. It's all sung. It's an opera. It's not like the Red Shoes where there's a story running through it. And then Leon Massine does a ballet at the end. I just fell in love with it from the pop. And he tells me that he still watches it all the time. It's a Michael Powell movie. And it's hard to find. It's kind of like uh, The Devil or something like that when uh, the subject of my book uh, in that it's a little rough to find but if you can it's kind of great so his favorite movie uh, and finally and this kind of blew my mind uh, at age 19 he worked as a gopher on the set of Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest wow which is pretty cool, although he was unimpressed with the director's mechanical and passionless directorial style but he worked on that uh, he worked on that movie and uh, so happy birthday, George Romero, many more. Uh, and he's a Canadian citizen now. So good on you. Uh, <laughs> the other thing that I, I found out today, um, which is unrelated to this, you know, it's only tangentially related is, uh, George Romero worked on North by Northwest legendary movie. Uh, Simon Cowell, as everyone knows, the judge from the old American idol movies, uh, was a gopher on the shining. Briefly, he worked on this movie, and his job was to shine Jack Nicholson's axe. So they here's Johnny axe passed through the hands of Simon Cowell before it passed through the door. That's fantastic. pretty crazy. Yeah, 
Um, I want to mention if you are a, a Romero fan, and there's a lot of new Romero fans because of, of his zombie films, yeah. uh, you should definitely check out his, I think, overlooked, underappreciated classic, which is Martin. Oh, Martin's a fantastic movie. It's a vampire movie, or is it? You know, guy thinks he's a vampire anyway. And it's a fantastic movie. Check out Martin. If you haven't seen it yet, you've got, is that a novel? That's the novel he wrote. Wow, I've never seen that. I know. I'm very proud to have it. <laughs> and it's great, by the way. The book is fantastic. Really? I have it on uh, DVD here somewhere, and it's in one of my 100 best movies you've never seen uh, uh, books. I, I put Mar uh, uh, that movie in because it's just a fantastic movie. Uh, but uh, I've never seen the novel. What yeah. an bit of ephemera you have just at your fingertips there. Tell me about it. It's got photos in there from the movie. and yeah, it's a really cool book, and I felt it was really well written. It's written by him and Suzanne Sparrow. Uh, so, yeah, good on him. And it really filled in a lot of the information. That was sort of, you know, the movie hints at a lot of things. The book helps to hint even further than that. Right. As you, you mentioned, that there is a question about, is he a vampire? Is he not a vampire? Is he just a messed up kid? No. Wonderful way that it sort of follows that question and so many other movies try to be that vague and hinting and just don't pull it off but martin martin's yeah. fantastic yeah martin i don't know what happened maybe he just came out at the wrong time or maybe people will only accept zombie movies from george a romero or they don't go to anything that isn't a zombie movie i don't know i don't know what the issue is with it but if you can find it it's a little tough to find as well if you can find it check it out it's really good yeah, I think it deserves a, a re-release and a re-appreciation. You know, it's odd, especially with the, the popularity of Twilight, that someone hasn't tried to bring Martin back uh, for a re-release like that. But, yeah, fantastic. I mean, a great little movie just in terms of uh, having a guy who, he is a vampire, but he doesn't have the fangs. So he uses the little razor blade and the syringe. And, yeah, it's fantastic. It's just wonderful. That's good stuff. <laughs> well, uh, you know, he's a number of his movies have been remade. And uh, he said he's sort of indifferent to the remakes often uh, of these films and that, uh, you know, people think that, oh, my God, how can you let Hollywood remake and ruin your movies? And he says, the movies aren't ruined. They're, you know, like Raymond Chandler once famously said, my books aren't ruined when they get turned into movies. They're still there on the shelf. The books are fine. The movies are good. That's another, that's a completely different discipline. And he feels that way about the remakes of some of his films. Well, and time has shown. Whenever anybody talks about Dawn of the Dead, believe me, they're not talking about Zack Snyder's version. No, they're not. Even though, you know, there are things to like in that version, mm. uh, the original Dawn of the Dead is one of the great horror movies. No, very true. Uh, what else have you brought with you today, sir? Well, I wanted to, um, I brought a story that I knew would be up your alley, that you'd be very, very interested in, which is about um, reviews and tampering from large corporations. Oh, interesting. Something I'd mentioned to you earlier, but things have continued forward and, and have kind of changed. Uh, and so I, I know you like this kind of stuff, and I thought I, I'd get your take on it. But um, an awards ceremony, an annual awards ceremony, has now been canceled, indefinitely closed, never going to happen, and it all comes down. Or just for this year. Never going to happen again. And it's all because of a review. So it's the review, like the, the shot that was heard around the world, this thing has just been incredible. And what happened was at the beginning of the year, there was a, a big, huge convention in Las Vegas called the Consumer Electronics Show. Right. 
or CES. And this is the, the big show in, in Las Vegas where the tech industry comes together and all the companies show off their wares, both for stores to come and place orders for the rest of the year, but journalists like myself to come and see what the next big thing is going to be. And uh, the Consumer Electro is one of the largest shows in the world. It is massive. You, you arrive and there are about four to 20,000 products to take a look at. It's too much for any one person to take in in just three days. And so for many years, there's been one outlet called CNET, that's the website down in the States, that has had the largest editorial staff to come and cover the show. And many years ago, the show said, hey, why don't we get together and we have an awards? At every year, we'll honor the best products of the show. And it just seemed to make sense because you had a large uh, editorial website that could handle all the logistics, and then the Las Vegas show would get together. And at the end of the show, they usually have some ceremony. I never go to them, uh, where they hand off little statuettes. And it's influential in that stores are placing orders for products. Right. So when you have a, a best of medallion next to your, your product, higher chance that people will buy it. Yeah. Uh, and so this year, everything was going as per normal. Uh, CNET had 40, a staff of 40 people had hit the, the floors. They all took, looked at what products they liked. At the end of the, the show, they all got together, and they would nominate which products would get an award. And uh, uh, there was a huge amount of support for nominating a product called The Hopper. Uh, the Hopper is a PVR uh, that's being offered by the DISH Network in the United States. Right. I wasn't paying attention because it's not coming to Canada. But what's important about this PVR is that two things. One, it has a button that allows you to skip commercials. Right. And then the second is that when you record shows, you can actually have them sent to your iPad. Wow. Right. And so that was the reaction of all the editors at CNET who unanimously said, we have to put this into contention. This has to be one of the products that we're going to vote on. In fact, they had gotten to the point where this they actually had cast about. This is what That's the it, looks right. like. Uh, so it just looks like a, a, a regular piece of home. I mean, it looks like a VCR or so whatever. It looks like a, a regular thing, but it's actually very revolutionary in terms of what it does and how it does it, right? Correct. And it's, it's the Hopper by Sling, and the Sling Box for a long time has been a great product uh, for geeks to be able to, you know, connect to their televisions back home while they're traveling, all sorts of stuff. And so it was unanimously amongst the staff, hey, we have to give this one an award because the ability to record your shows and then watch them on your iPad, that's huge. Uh, and of course, this, this functionality of being able to skip commercials, it's something everybody's been looking for. There's no way this has to win the award. And that's when the phone rang. And on the other end was an employee representing CNET's owner, which is CBS. Uh, and this came from the office of Mr. Les Moonves. Somebody at Who was the, the CEO, the, the big kahuna of CBS. Correct. And so somebody at either at the, um, the, the CES show or someone who worked for CNET had tattletailed. And this information got all the way up. And uh, they informed, well, I shouldn't say they informed, they ordered the CNET staff. They said, okay, this is how it is. Uh, you will take the hopper out of consideration for the award. Uh, if anyone asks, you don't reply. From this point on, this matter will be taken over by the CBS Corporate Communications Group. So we will issue a statement on your behalf if anyone shows any interest as to what's happening. What CBS didn't know was that by that time it had already leaked that the hopper had won the award. And so now they're in the embarrassing position of having to take the award away from the hopper. The reason for this, it turns out, is because CBS was in the middle of a lawsuit with the Dish Network. 
the Dish Network and CBS had been battling back and forth for some odd reason. A lot of it had to do with territorial kind of things, things I, I don't know too much about. Well, I, there's I think... big money involved here. Like, like, make no mistake, when, if you can skip commercials, there's huge money because what that means, if enough people get their hands on the hopper and, and start shooting TV shows to their iPads to watch on the way into work on the subway or just for home use, and you just have to program a little a button or two to skip commercials, um, ultimately that's going to affect the amount of money that can charge for those commercials, and that's why CBS is probably tying this up forever in court. Right. Well, the, the issue, I think, was that uh, Dish Network had been recently given a really bad new, uh, deal by CBS and the other broadcasters, where it made it very difficult for Dish Network to continue to do business in right. terms of the, how much money they had to pay for the broadcast feeds from CBS. And right. a point of contention was that CBS and them would continue to make money off of their commercials. So there is a little bit of a retaliation from Dish suddenly deciding that this product could continue forward and would be able to skip commercials. Hey, you're still making money off of Dish, you're just not going to make money off the commercials kind of deal. So this antagonizing relationship is going back and forth, but CBS had decided that they were going to jump in and, and you know, tell the, the CNET, you can't give an award to this product. Right. Uh, the basis for their, their claim on that was they said, as far as they're concerned, the product is illegal, and that's what they're asserting within the, the lawsuit. Of course, you know, it's not illegal until a judge says so. Just right. because you feel that's the case, that's not it. Um, as you can imagine, the, the staff at CNET were not too thrilled by this. There is supposed to be a separation between, you know, your business interests and your journalistic interests. Church and state, right there, yeah. So the editors were like, we don't really care. I mean, number one, find that there's a lawsuit and we'll wait and see what happens with that lawsuit, what the results are. But in the meantime, this is a product that's going to be sold on shelves. We have a duty to our readers to review it and let them know whether this is something that's worth buying. And again, you know, the, the problem was that it was unanimously decided this was a fantastic product. And we've seen this before where there have been issues with past PVRs that can record shows. And often what happens is that once everything is settled, the Dish Network would just simply remove that feature from the box and it would continue to be sold. And it would still be worthwhile because you could watch shows on your iPad. So yeah. this, this became a big, huge uh, problem for the staff at CNET. A lot of them were really upset by this. Uh, the word had been leaked by that time that this is a, had already happened. A lot of newspapers and articles were writing uh, about it and drawing a lot of heated attention. So CBS responded. Uh, and it's usually at this point you get a response from the, you know, a corporate response that is designed to calm everybody down. And CBS issued uh, a press release saying, you know, this is, you know, the situation. We contend that the box is illegal. We asked CNET to remove it as a finalist from consideration. We did not know that it had actually had won the, pro uh, the prize. But they, they, they assured everybody <laughs> that it is not their policy to inf interfere in the editorial work of CNET. And this is the choice line that really threw everybody. They said, had it been actual news, we assure you we wouldn't have interfered. Right, because they can't be seen to be uh, uh, dabbling because they've got such a huge uh, news division and one with a storied history that they can't be seen to be tampering with the news. But the inference being here that what they had done, this award ceremony, the review that was done, or even that reviews themselves shouldn't be considered the same uh, standard as normal editorial news. Right. It's kind of frightening. 
Well, um, no, it, it is, but I mean, it's an excuse, right? I mean, it has nothing to do with reality. It, that's that's what you say when you get caught. You know, when you when you get caught in something, you go, oh, what? Well, it's well, you know, if it was news, we wouldn't do this. And I mean, regardless, they, they would just hope that no one actually gives it a second thought. But of course, people do. But no, it's corporate baffle gab. Well, immediately, one of the reviewers at CNET quit, resigned, and uh, announced the resignation on Twitter. There's been a live discussion. Uh, jokes are constantly being made left, right, and center. With the um, the power went out on the Super Bowl. Uh, yeah, on, yeah. on Twitter, there were uh, jokes about how CNET is no longer allowed to report on light bulbs. Uh, <laughs> it's been ongoing like this for a while. Uh, and editors there have had to write articles. They say that... Um, their problem is that they're being basically manhandled. They're not being shown any respect at all in terms of how they can handle this or any consideration for their reputation. So their decision was, because uh, there have been people calling for them to resign, saying, if you don't resign, you're not standing up for your ethics. You're not standing up for your principles. And the one main editor said, well, she felt she needed to stay because there were people who depended upon her. I'm not well, sure I, I well, agree with know, that. I, I yeah, but you know, I also I I really uh, am getting bored. I grow bored of this culture that we seem to be living in now, where everyone's first reaction is, "Well, these people have to quit, no matter what. They should be fired, or they have to quit. You have to leave your job. You should lose your job because you're." And I I I I don't agree with that because um, not always. I mean, it, you know, listen, it goes case by case, I guess. But it, it, there seems to be this knee-jerk thing now where people want to see people unemployed for every little infraction, everything that happens. In this case, um, I wouldn't – I don't know what I would do. I would probably – I wouldn't be happy. I would probably go public and get fired is what I would do, probably, uh, un, you know, unwittingly get fired. But I think uh, in this case, you know, if you just bring in – a whole new group of people <laughs> you're gonna the, the problem doesn't go away and so at least you have people here who uh, are familiar with what goes on were there when the infraction happened and can maybe work with the people and see you know and, and try and improve things you know why why waste that experience uh, you know just by uh, you know I'm gonna make a stand and I'm gonna quit I'm gonna walk out right now it would be your first instinct, probably, if you had any ethics whatsoever. But on another hand, I mean, you know, uh, I, I, I think reviewing, uh, you, if you are to be taken seriously at all, you cannot uh, allow things like this. Uh, you, you, can, you cannot be seen to allow things like this happen. And to, to happen, and these people haven't, from my understanding of the story, I read a bit about this when you when you shot it over to me in an email a little while ago. My understanding is that the staff reacted properly. The staff said, "Well, you know, we don't agree," and you know they canceled the awards again. Like it wasn't like they said, oh, "Okay, whatever, man, we'll just take this out of the running." And you know, it's just it, uh, they seem to have reacted the way that responsible, ethical journalists would have responded. So I'm not sure that there is any need for them to to resign. No, their reaction, they said, was uh, they felt the the smart thing was to be fully transparent, which was to post on their website articles that said, "This is what happened. Yep. This is what's gone down. This is what we've heard from CBS. This is the the pressure that we're on moving forward." And I guess that's the only hope that you could do is that as you come across this issue again, the readers know that they're going to be transparent about whatever moves forward the next time. I, I have never, in in almost twenty years of of reviewing things publicly on television and 
uh, radio and in print, I have never once ever uh, had any interference from anyone. Um, I've had loads of letters afterwards, you know, from people who weren't happy about things that I wrote, uh, from filmmakers to actors to, you know, the general public. Um, you know, you get just as many from people who are happy, but you, you, you definitely, when people are unhappy, you hear about it. But I had one experience that I thought for sure was going to cost me a gig. I thought for sure this was going to cost me my job. And uh, uh, Canada AM, show that I review uh, movies for in the morning, did a, a whole long uh, uh, tour of Paris, London, Paris, maybe just London, Paris, when the first Da Vinci Code movie came out. They moved the show over there. And so they were there, they were showing the sites, they were, in, they were mentioned in the movie, they were interviewing the actors, they were doing this long thing about it. And then I had to review the movie on Friday, at the end of the week, after they'd been there and they're, you know, talking about this yeah. all week. And I crucified it. I thought it was an awful movie and I said and so. justly so, by the way, yeah. But I, I, I'm not going to lie, but I was a little nervous about doing it. I mean... You know, I mean, I wasn't going to change the review because obviously I didn't. But I, I, I thought, well, this is probably it. You know, <laughs> let's let's go with a bang. And so I gave the movie the review that I felt it deserved. And uh, on the way uh, back down in the car, I checked my emails on my phone, and there was one from the executive producer. And I was like, well, that's it. I'm out of here. And it was a letter of congratulations, uh, saying, you know what? It, there must have been pressure to, uh, you know, you might have felt some pressure, uh, not from them, but just sort of from me, you know, to keep the gig, uh, to, you know, go a little easier on the movie than you did. We're glad you didn't. Shows you have ethics, shows we have ethics. And I was like, bang, right on. That's very cool. Yeah, and that's the, that's the, uh, that, that is the closest that I've ever gotten uh, to any kind of uh, uh, corporate response um, for the, from the people I was working for. And right. it was very positive. I've gotten lots of, as I said, lots of response outside of that, but from the people that are actually signing the checks, it's the one and only time, and it was, uh, it made me feel good. Well, it's it's a very rare occurrence, and I think that it really, when it happens, it takes reviewers completely off guard, because you don't know how you're supposed to respond. It's not something you hear happening too often. Um, my closest sort of match also was on Canada was the time in which I had to review high HD DVD versus Blu-ray. Mm -hmm. So that we had been talking about the two products for a very long time. Now it was the time for me to bring both of those technologies onto the show and right. talk about them uh, and, and sort of try to explain which one is the better one. And as I arrange for, you know, on, on the show, I do all the demos myself. Everything has to come in. It's my products. I ship, uh, set them up and all sorts of things. But in planning for that, I had arranged to have an HD DVD player connected with an HD DVD disc and brought in because Toshiba owned the technology on a Toshiba television. And then the same thing set up with all Sony because Sony owned Blu-ray. Uh, and I immediately got flagged for it because CTV at the time had an agreement with Sony to only feature Sony televisions on all their programming. Right. So Sony supplied, uh, if you saw a television back in the, those days on any of the programs in the news, uh, you know, on, on eTalk Daily or whatever, it was a Sony television set that you would see. Not that they mentioned it or, you know, 
overtly sort of drew attention to it, but it always was a Sony television. And I, had, at the time, got very angry and said, well, you know, this is a, a, a story where we're comparing two companies who are in a heated battle here. I think it's it's respectful enough to allow Toshiba be represented by Toshiba television and Sony be represented by Sony television. And they would not allow me to do that. Uh, we had a, a bitter battle going back and forth. Uh, I wasn't happy. I, I was ready to cancel the segment. Uh, they were not happy because this was union rules, and, and those guys are very strict in terms of they thought that their job was hanging the balance if we had a Toshiba television. I said, this is editorial. It's not like normal content of the show. We have to show this kind of thing. Our compromise, uh, and it was odd because even the people at Toshiba didn't seem to care. But and I'm thinking, who am I fighting for here? Other than my own damn principles here, who am I doing in <laughs> this battle? Why am I putting my job on the line here for anybody but me? But uh, the compromise that I managed to work out with the, the personalities that were involved, who were not happy and were standing their ground, was that we put black tape over the logos on the two televisions so you wouldn't be able to tell. Because that was my eventual, you know, as we went through the run through, I said, look, you're going to go do a close up of the Blu-ray box. You're going to do a close up of the HD DVD box. And the top end of the frame, you can see the logo that's on the bottom of the TV. And it's going to look confusing to the audience if they see an HD DVD box with Sony over top. We're trying to say this is Toshiba. And that's how we got it. We put black tape on it. But it was this odd situation you suddenly find yourself in that you don't expect that you're going to have those kinds of conversations or those kinds of battles. Yeah, I mean, you know, whenever there's more than one person involved in anything, there's going to be conflicts, I guess. I, you know, I, 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 uh, I don't know. I, 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 as I say, I've just been very lucky or, you know, whatever it is. I don't know if it's luck or what, but I, I have been untouched by this. And, and, you know, this whole thing at CNET, you know, it's a conundrum. It's hard to know what to do. I mean, you know, uh, in the in the current media climate that we're in right now, there's not a lot of jobs out there. Uh, and, you know, and, and what they do is fairly spe uh, specific. And you know, uh, and and uh, I would opt for exactly what they're doing: utter transparency. I think that would be the way to go. But you know what? I know. It's hard to know. It's hard uh, to know. Uh, the um, Gary Shapiro who's the head of the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. His approach was to write a scathing editorial uh, in USA Today, in which he really took out uh, lots of comments against CBS. So let me see if I can... I can never recall any major media company, much less a top-tier First Amendment protector like CBS, publicly mandating an editorial decision based on business interests. Right. The bizarre aggressiveness of CBS executives against the Hopper Sling disturbed me as it not only tainted the CES awards, but it hurt one of the world's classiest media companies. Right. And he goes on to say, you know, and a lot of people were sort of saying, this is odd behavior to see from CBS, which happens to also be the, the home of 60 Minutes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, oh, these and others. Yeah, I mean, one of the most venerated uh, uh, media companies and news companies in the world, you know. And allowing something that ultimately, end of the day, is kind of petty. I mean, the inference here with uh, Gary Shapiro is to say, look, at the end of the day, this is going to hurt CBS far more than whatever this little lawsuit that they're having with, with Dish Networks. The lawsuit will, will be resolved, as they all do. You know? <laughs> this whole situation will eventually find uh, its ending. But 
the damage that has been done to not only the editorial staff over at, at CNET, the reputation, but in CBS is something that's going to linger for a long time, especially with the internet. You have so many editorials being written about this. People are going to be able to perform searches and refer back to this again and again and again, five years, eight years from now. Oh, it will never go away. And it's interesting, you know, Edward R. Murrow, who was held up as the paragon of, of journalistic ethics, uh, made his career at CBS. It would be interesting to see what he would have thought uh, about this whole situation. You know, but it's, it, it's interesting to me, this is unrelated, uh, in fact, completely unrelated, but someone, I wanted to get your opinion on this, uh, and I haven't prepared this, so I don't have all the details, but I, I read about this this week. A woman uh, in the U.S. Uh, has written on her Twitter feed, these uh, are not publishable on, in stories or blogs. I own these. This is it. And so she was challenged by, in the, you know, Twitter, uh, yeah, these two tweet people, you know, they're, they're, they're looking for this kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, she was challenged by this, and she was threatening to sue, and it was, you know, back and forth. And lawyers got involved on Twitter and saying, well, you can't sue. You don't own this. You've already published them. These things are. And as it turns out, this woman is already being uh, sued for publishing uh, private online diaries of a 17-year-old girl that she made public in a story that she wrote. And uh, I just wonder if you've ever heard of such a thing. If you've heard of uh, someone uh, saying, you know, Twitter, Twitter, I, I own whatever comes out, and uh, whatever I tweet in 140 characters or less, you can't repeat anywhere. So what happens if you retweet? Am I breaking the rules if I retweet? Because it's going to, theoretically, a different website, a different page, you know? Have you ever heard of such a thing? I, well, I haven't heard of it. I mean, I've heard of people who have written something similar, say, on their website. Right. Or especially people who deal with photography. They sort of, you know, and what you're doing is you're not really threatening any legal right, because there isn't any. Uh, yeah. What you're doing is sort of asking politely. You're, you're reminding people, hey, when you come to my website, please... <laughs> respect yeah. the fact that these are my photos I worked really really hard to make them don't copy them and steal them for your own content but yeah I mean Twitter is the weirdest place to do that because as you pointed out I mean when you sign up for Twitter you, you've signed a, an agreement that, <laughs> that covers all that kind of thing and then on top of that it's the very nature of the, the medium itself where tweets are designed to be copied and retweeted and traveled and moved if you don't want your information to be quoted in a newspaper don't put it on Twitter <laughs> well, see, that seems to be the, you know, that, that, that seems to be the point here. And, you know, it's really not much of a story, and, except that the, the vehemence in which she defended her right or, 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 or stated her intention to sue people on Twitter was quite astounding. I, I, I found myself sucked in. I read this whole long thread. And, but, and, and the viciousness of people that were trying to bait her, I guess. I don't know. Anyway. Not really a story, but your your thing. Uh, yeah, no, but intriguing. Well, and that's sort of, I think, where it ties in is that you have somebody like Les Moonves not getting it, yeah. not understanding the true nature of, of, of his request and what's happening. You cannot, in this day and age, make those kinds of requests and expect that it, it adheres to the old rules. The same way as this woman does not understand that you cannot start threatening people and saying, look, you cannot quote my Twitter feed in your paper or do anything like that. It's I, different. I, I'm just surprised at Les Moonves because he's way savvier than that. 
This is not someone who is new to this game. This is not someone who's just fallen off the back of the turnip truck. He's been around for a long time. He is a very high power. He's running CBS. He's very high powered, uh, uh, you know, uh, well liked, interesting television executive. And so this seems to me to be uh, a little bit out of character for one thing, and a really bizarro move from him. I can only imagine it was something that you know he heard about. He's like, okay, we're going to kill this right now, and just didn't really think about it. No, I would hope that it didn't. That they didn't have meetings to talk about this and decided it was a good idea. I hope this was a spur of the moment thing, uh, and which will never be repeated. Yeah, so I think it was something that you know, as they say, he was tilting. Yeah. Uh, because I know that the battle between CBS and, and Dish, as well as other broadcasters, was something that was getting very personal. It was getting to be, you know, the old K Corral bunch of you know executives acting like cowboys, going, "Oh yeah." Yeah. Well, fine. We're going to launch a PVR that will skip commercials, and you can't do anything about it. You know, I, I think there's been that level of, of friction going on where, as you pointed out, he probably reacted without really thinking about it. Yeah, my, that would be my guess. Uh, someone else who I don't feel is really thinking uh, too clearly uh, these days is um, a, a filmmaker who, frankly, I've not heard of uh, before. Um, uh, the only uh, thing on uh, Jonathan Bukhari's uh, resume that I've been able to see is a television pilot, but it's called The Sacrificial Lamb. Uh, but what he's thinking about doing now is, uh, well, what he's doing right this second and thinking about doing, uh, he's in a place called Ridgefield, Connecticut right now, which is about 25 or 30 miles away from Newtown, Connecticut, where uh, a gunman fatally shot 20 first graders uh, and six teachers and himself in December. And this guy is scouting locations because Ridgefield looks a lot like Newtown to make a, a drama, to make a film about this. And, you know, I, you know I'm all for people uh, creatively expressing themselves. I'm all for people uh, saying what they mean. I believe in free speech. I believe in saying whatever. I wouldn't have a career without it. But I think this is too soon. And it's too soon to take a tragedy like this and turn it into uh, an entertainment. And uh, this is what, you know, is the plan. Now, whether or not this movie ever gets made, like scouting for locations from a director that no one's ever heard of is another thing, you know. But I, I, I can't imagine uh, that this will work out well for anybody. And I, I, I hope that this doesn't really go by, much as I hope the, the Homolka, the, the movie about Carla Homolka, I saw it. I went to see it out of curiosity at a press screening. It's a terrible movie. And, you know, it it, it, it wasn't uh, – my take on that is that, again, I, you know, it, it's a movie uh, that I, I didn't really necessarily think was appropriate at the time. Uh, but then it was just so awful. I thought, wow, can you not even make a good movie out of this? So the, 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 the new film, Ridgetown, I don't know how you feel about it. I just don't think it's – I don't think it's quite right. And he yeah. says that he's going to Ridgefield because he doesn't want to upset the Newtown residents so soon after the killings. It's lazy, is yeah. my approach to it. I mean, you're talking about someone who hasn't really, has he ever made a movie before? So for me, my immediate reaction is that this is someone who 
uh, feels that this is an easy way to make a movie that people are actually going to watch, that actually people are going to, it will it'll be pregnant with meaning because it's about a subject matter that's already has meaning. Yeah. So this is very lazy. This is someone who, you know, going off and trying to make a, a film about somebody else's tragedy is a lot easier than sitting down and facing a blank screen and having to come up with a story on your own. Well, absolutely. And, and I mean, but, you know, exactly how do you dramatize this? How do you dramatize six-year-olds being shot? You know, and, and um, there are ways. I mean, there are true crime movies made all the time. True crime sure, movies yeah. made all the time. But this seems particularly, I mean, Newtown uh, has changed things in the way, you know, maybe not, well, not to the extent that 9-11 did, because that's changed so many things. But Newtown really has uh, ignited, uh, you know, the, the gun control debate anew in the United States in a way that in my memory anyway I can't remember it being not even after Columbine not after Aurora Colorado not after um, you know so many of these other mass shootings that we've heard about um, all of a sudden you know you've got the president and the vice president and people Republicans even going you know what maybe uh, we should look at this and you know so this is this is a this is a, a different thing altogether and, and I just, uh, I mean, I don't want to be appear to be a prude or to censor because he can make the movie once. I wouldn't stop him from making it. I just don't feel it's a good, I won't give him any money to make it. No, no. If, if suddenly there's a page on Kickstarter, he's asking for money to come in to help fund a movie like that. No, no. Uh, I, don't I, think I have a feeling this is going, that's how this is going to be. Uh, um, let's just see here. Yeah, I have a feeling it's going to be funded that way. And it's a TV movie related to the Newtown school shooting. And, you know, to me, um, my, you know, so, so often uh, in the last number of years, we've seen movies particularly pertaining to uh, the war in Iraq, um, you know, ripped from the headlines kind of uh, movies that haven't done particularly well. I, I think that we are so uh, inundated by bad news and bad news images in real life these days that people aren't paying and people don't want to pay to go to the theaters to see reenactments of things from our very recent history that have, uh, you know, a detrimental effect on society or that, that feel that are upsetting. I think that, I think people are, are, are growing tired of that. And so hopefully, you know, someone will explain that to uh, whatever this guy's name is. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Jonathan Bukhari. Maybe someone will explain Jonathan Bukhari. Well, and, and the real professionals are not going out there and making movies based on these real events. I mean, they're doing more historical dramas that kind of, you know, recreate events that mirror some of the things that are happening in the more modern age. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what was going on at the Golden Globes. It seemed like every male actor in the room had a vintage mustache or a beard going on. So it, yeah, I think, you know, I mean, they're all probably, because everyone thought Lincoln was going to win everything. Yeah. They're all trying to, like, if you make a sequel, Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like, I'm thinking, the mustache. Next, next year going to be the year in which we see all these movies coming out about the 1600s, the 1800s. Uh, it just seemed uh, astonishing. Maybe. But, you know, th there are people who tackle those kinds of subjects matter usually go about it in very different ways. You make a horror movie where the subtext is similar to stuff that's happening. That's like going. Romero. I mean, this is, you know, George Romero's movies. Um, yeah, they're zombie movies. People eat guts. They do all sorts of the things that you want to see in a zombie movie, but there's always something more to them.
whether it be the, the civil rights movement, movement in the 1960s or consumerism uh, during the 1980s, uh, yeah, there's always been a deeper subtext to everything that George A. Romero does, and hopefully uh, that's what other uh, directors will do. We just lost Richard Krauss. Uh, but don't worry, he'll be back, as will I, here on Hey All You Zombies. Go to our website, heyallyouzombies.com. If you have any suggestions for subjects that we can touch upon, we'll be happy to do so. We'd love to hear your feedback in terms of what kind of movies and zombies you like. And, and if you're going to Union Station, take a look, because both Richard and I will be hanging out there tomorrow. Oh, he's back. We froze. Uh, Reminding everybody to go to Union Station. You might just see you and I hanging out there. That's Check right. Out. Yeah, we'll go to Union Station uh, Wednesday, the 6th of February, between 2 and 7. There's going to be zombies. I'm going to be there. I'm going to take a camera. I'm going to take some pictures of zombies. Um, you know, who knows? George Romero might even, he won't. But maybe. You know, you never know. Maybe you'll be catching the GO train. It'll be like, what? It's like my worst nightmare come true. <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. Cool. So that's uh, another episode wrapped, and I guess uh, we'll reconvene next week, in which we'll be talking about uh, the first episode of Walking Dead. I can't oh, wait. Oh, you know we're going to be talking about that. <laughs> See you, zombie lovers. <laughs>